Hello, everybody, and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. And I'm your host, Justin Jackson. And remember, you can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL and what's going down there in weeks 10 and 11. We'll touch on Jack's Pack, which is our NFL betting segment. We will do the NFL offseason and what's going down there. We will touch on the NCAA and their battle versus COVID as ongoing every week. And lastly, we will have our best for last. Now sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast into an absolutely loaded show. Thanks to COVID, there is one positive, and that there is prime action all over the sporting landscape. I mean, we've got the NBA offseason in November. We've got prime NFL games in the middle of the regular season. We've got college football trying to get their act together. College basketball is two weeks away, just about. And it is absolutely amazing for the sporting world. I mean, we just had the Masters last weekend. So absolutely amazing. Thanks to COVID, one positive came out of that. was an almost near universal sporting season. Thanks to COVID happening and delaying so many sports around the country and around the world. But in this week's episode, we're going to start off with what I believe is truly America's pastime, which is the National Football League. Now, it was an absolutely loaded week in week 10. We saw all kind of spectacular games. And first, we got to start off with the Hail Mary. Kyler Murray to DeAndre Hopkins was the best Hail Mary I've personally ever seen. I know that we've got the Aaron Rodgers, too. One against the Cardinals and one against the Lions, I believe, where he nearly hit the ceiling on both throws. Both throws were impressive, but having Kyler Murray scramble out of the pocket, escape pressure, throw it falling left almost out of bounds on a rope to DeAndre Hopkins, who outjumps three very good Bills defenders, including Tredavious White, to bring in the touchdown with basically one second left. Might have been two or three. I mean, I put that in terms of context as an amazing catch, an amazing play, and my best and all-time favorite Hail Mary due to the fact of the Bills had just scored. The Bills had just walked down the field, Josh Allen to Stephon Diggs with 37 seconds left, beating Patrick Peterson. Stephon Diggs is walking off the field, beating his chest, talking about that's why you pay me, that's why you pay me. I mean, we were talking about Stephon Diggs is one of the guys who could be in that discussion for the best receiver in football. And then DeAndre Hopkins said, hold my beer, and went over three amazing Bills defenders, bringing it down cleanly. And flat out cemented himself as top two when he's not two. He even got himself to a 99 rating in Madden thanks to that catch and overall performance in that game. I mean, if I'm the Bills, that's one you couldn't afford to lose. That one hurt because you thought you had it. And then Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins said, oh, no, you don't. So those two guys are going to have an amazing game tonight or Thursday at night, I should say, in which case we will talk about them a little later. But next, we're going to talk about the Vikings and the Bears. That was a huge game in the NFC North. A, it kept the Bears off pace of the Packers. Now the Packers have a grip on the NFC North. What it also did was it gave the Minnesota Vikings a confirmed hope into making the playoffs. 
Nobody wants to face that Vikings team. I'll tell you that now. That Vikings team has a pass rush. They have a couple of good corners. The secondary is functional. Kirk Cousins is not turning the ball over right now. When he does that, and he's working well off the play action, you give Dalvin Cook a little space, and he's going to make you pay, and he's going to bang his head on the goalpost a couple of times. He didn't against the Bears, but the threat of him and the Bears was so focused on stopping him, it allowed Kirk Cousins to have pretty decent freedom and to get his first win ever on Monday night. Now, as for the Bears, they're in a little bit of a quarterback situation. Mitchell Trubisky's already hurt. We thought Nick Foles was hurt really, really bad. Some people were saying hip. Some people were saying back. It was a real concern to the end of that game. Turns out that through tests and stuff like that, he is not hurt nearly as bad as the fear. And therefore, he is maybe a week away. But they're going to need a quarterback. And they're going to probably roll with Tyler Bray, who finished the game. They brought in Deshaun Kaiser for a workout. I don't think he believed he was signed, especially due to COVID protocols. He probably would not have been eligible to even be a backup this week for the Chicago Bears. But they're looking for someone to fill in the spot because they're probably going to have to call up their practice squad quarterback to the main roster to back up Tyler Bray. And so you're going to need, obviously, somebody to run their practice squad for you, which is why Deshaun Kaiser was brought in for a workout. But the Vikings are a team nobody wants to play. I don't think the Bears have enough to do anything in the playoffs if they even make it. They have no offense. It's honestly kind of sad. I don't blame Matt Nagy entirely. I actually blame Ryan Pace, the GM, for not providing a better quarterback for Nagy to work with. But his play calling has not been the greatest. He even turned over his play calling to his offensive coordinator, and that wasn't great. And so they're definitely going to have to figure out something in Chicago. Now, the Rams and the Seahawks was a huge game inside of a division. It was even bigger than the Vikings and the Bears game because of the implications for both teams. Had the Seahawks won that game, they would have gone into the game Thursday with the Cardinals at an advantage. They would have gone in the game one game up. So even if they lost to the Cardinals, yes, they would not have lost the tiebreaker. I mean, they would have lost the tiebreaker to Arizona. But all they had to do was outpace Arizona the rest of the season, and they would still have the division win. And they would have put a game between themselves, or two games rather, with the Los Angeles Rams having to play them one more time, knowing you can't go down and lose two tiebreakers. So they would have been in a prime position to make an immediate impact into the playoffs and to make the playoffs out of the NFC West as the division winner. However, the Seahawks lost. Russell Wilson had another bad day in terms of turnovers. He's had 10 turnovers in the last three or four games. And this is not a good sign for the Seattle Seahawks. Obviously, they need Russell Wilson to be spectacular. The team is not that great around him. And when you have a situation like that, it forces your quarterback to make a lot of rough decisions. So having said that, I expect the Seahawks to possibly have a bounce back game, but they're going to have to figure out a situation for Russell Wilson not to have to be a dominant player all the time because he is having to carry a not so great roster due to the lack of offensive weapons and really defensive playmakers on the team. As for the Los Angeles Rams, that was what we call a good Rams game. I've said it to you before. I'll say it to you again. The Rams, you can tell in the first two drives of offense and defense if it's going to be a good Rams game or a bad Rams game. And that was a good Rams game. So they will 
go into Monday Night Football against the Buccaneers, hoping to repeat that performance. Consistency is something that they struggle with, so they will definitely be trying to rectify that situation. Speaking of Monday Night Football, this was Sunday Night Football, but the Ravens and the Patriots. That was the game we got wrong in Jacks 5, and as a Patriots fan, I am perfectly okay with that. I thought that the Baltimore Ravens were going to come into New England, suffocate the weapons, and basically not allow Cam Newton to do anything offensively at all. I was wrong. Mostly. The Ravens, well, did come in and suffocate the, the, the weapons, and Cam didn't do a lot of hold offensively. What I was not anticipating, what I did not know, was that an absolutely brutal weather system was going to move into the area. It delayed the Cleveland game against the Texans, and invariably it made a monsoon for the Ravens and Pats game. Absolutely drenching all the players, all the staff. The field was a mess. I mean, it ended up being the best pass of the night was by Jacoby Myers, who played high school quarterback. Pretty decent one based on the highlights they showed on TV. But that was the best throw of the night. Lamar Jackson threw the ball better than I've seen him throw it in a monsoon, which was a tad bit weird. You'd think it'd be the other way around. But he threw the ball well. And as for Cam Newton, hey, he got a win, a big win. Now the Patriots are 4-5, and five, if I'm saying it correctly. They are two plays legitimately away from being 6-3. and Because if Cam doesn't fumble, they're going to get an end zone there against the Buffalo Bills. And they're a play away in Seattle. That, I mean, that was Seattle's best defensive play of the season so far. So they're two plays away from being 6-3, and three, really putting a lot of pressure, and I believe actually leading the division in the AFC East. But instead, they're 4-5, and five, and their schedule gets a little easier. As for the Ravens, we'll speak about them a little later because they're facing the Titans next week. But that was a loss that was kind of explainable, but kind of not. you think in that sort of weather that they would have had the advantage, but they got pushed around. I know they had some injuries, but they got pushed around there. The run game cannot really get started effectively, and so they struggled. And lastly, the, the last game we'll talk about in Week 10 is the Giants and Eagles. Look, I don't know what the Eagles' plan is to do at quarterback, but they've got to let Carson Wentz be Carson Wentz. When he comes out and tries to not make the mistake, you take away his playmaking ability. You take away his natural ability to just go out, make a play, make something happen, and you lose to a team in the Giants that are a great coach team. And look, we all had our doubts about Joe Judge, myself included, and it turns out that it might have been the right decision in New York. He's definitely turned around the culture. He's definitely got the guys willing to play inspired playing football which is something that Doug Peterson of the Eagles I don't think is doing right now and he's definitely connecting with his young quarterback and Daniel Jones so I give all credit to Joe Judge for turning around that New York Giants football program culture wise we saw this last year with Brian Flores in Miami and look what the Dolphins are doing now they are six and three two is three and oh and they're not even asking the kid to do a whole lot so Joe Judge is definitely putting a stamp on the New York Giants organization. I think Doug Peterson needs to find a way to do the same with the Philadelphia Eagles. But now we're going to shift to week 11 and what happened in week 11 or what's going to happen week 11, I should say. The Thursday night football game between the Cardinals and the Seahawks. Seattle, this is an effective elimination game for you. 
It would not have been had you beat the Rams last week, but since you didn't, this is an effective elimination game for you. It's very similar to what the Buccaneers went through with the Saints. We will talk about it a little later. Both teams, actually. The Because if the Seahawks lose Thursday, then they will be two games effectively behind the Cardinals because the Cardinals will own the outright tiebreaker against the Seahawks having swept them this season. So if they end up with the same record, the Cardinals will get the division win or get the higher seed or get the playoff spot or whatever it may be. The Seahawks would have to flat out be two games better than the Cardinals the rest of the way. Then there's only five games left of the season. So you're going to have to go four and one and hope they go two and three or five and hope they go three and two. And that's just a lot of pressure over the last five games of the season in order to try and make up a two game lead. So Seattle's game is huge for Arizona. This could be your first leading a division in years. I mean, since the Kurt Warner days in terms of leading a division and really having a shot to make some noise in the playoffs. So this is a huge game for Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins, who just had that amazing play together, the, the Hail Mary, and a struggling defense. They got a pretty decent coordinator. I like him, but he's going to have to get that defense rolling. Isaiah Simmons needs to play a little more. He needs to get a little more speed out there on the defensive end. He's a jack of all trades, and so you need to get him on the field a little more. Now shifting to the Atlanta Falcons versus the New Orleans Saints. It's the arrival of Jameis Winston, the official arrival. Yes, he came in for Drew Brees, but hey, thrown in the situation, nobody really expects much for you. Now he's had a week of preparation. He's had a week of film. He's had a week of knowing he's QB1. And so Jameis Winston is going to go against Atlanta Falcons in a huge game because the Bucs are right at their heel. But similarly to the Cardinals, they have, or as Cardinals could have, the Saints have the sweep. So the Bucs are two games back, even though Nathaniel is only one game back because the Bucs have to have a flat out better, better record because they got swept by the New Orleans Saints in their regular season. Both games were not particularly close. And so that being said, Jameis has to just not crash the ship. If he beats Atlanta once out of these next three weeks, he's pretty much done his job because they have the Denver Broncos, if memory serves me correctly. They have Falcons, Broncos, and then Falcons again on Thanksgiving. So if he beats the Falcons once, you can pretty much assume he's going to beat the Broncos. He'll still steer the ship well enough until Drew Brees returns from his five, repeat them, five fractured ribs and a collapsed lung. So that being said, I think that the Saints can stay afloat, keep the Bucks in the wild card, and avoid having to win three road games to get into the Super Bowl. However, Raheem Morris has the Falcons playing confidently. He has them playing smartly, which was something that, again, I spoke about the Patriots earlier, are two plays away from six and three. The Falcons are three plays away from six and three. Ty Gurley doesn't score. They recover the onside kick, and Nick Foles doesn't get a pass interference call when they when the Bears came to, to town and Foles came in for Trubisky. The Falcons are six and three right now. They're a very talented football team. They're putting up a bunch of numbers. They just don't seem to finish games. Now a huge game and a very underratedly huge game. Titans and Ravens. I spoke about the Ravens earlier. And the Titans have the similar issue. They seem to not be able to play from behind. Both have a quarterback and a systematic issue. If you get the Titans down 10 points to 5 minutes left, their best player is out of it. Derrick Henry. 
he he's useless. I mean, because he's not a hit your head on the goalpost Saquon kind of guy. He is a kind of guy that is two yards, three yards, 25 yards, two yards, four yards, 10 yards, 12 yards. He's a plodding runner, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to if he's in the middle of one of his two, three, seven, six spans, well, there goes a minute and a half or five minute clock. So therefore, you take your best player out of the game in a situation where the Titans get down and now all of a sudden they're in a bad situation. As for the Ravens, their struggles from being playing from behind have been well chronicled. Lamar Jackson has not won a game in his career down by 10 points or more. I think they're one in something when they're even losing at halftime. They won their first come from behind game at halftime ever just a couple weeks ago against the Colts with Lamar Jackson. That's a problem. He's 0-2 in the playoffs because the teams know you get them down and their ability and their offense is based on the play action. I think it's due to limited personnel, especially at the quarterback position, but they need to figure out a way to win games. This is a huge game. Both have lost to the Steelers. Both have lost to good football teams that you would consider, you know, good football teams. So in order to prove they can beat a playoff level opponent, they're going to have to win this game, either the Titans or the Ravens. Now, the next one is the Chiefs and the Raiders. Now, this game is important for a multitude of reasons. The Chiefs have one loss. It's to the Raiders. The Raiders believe they can play on the level of the Chiefs. Why? They beat them already. The Raiders took a victory lap around the Chiefs stadium after they won. John Gruden made some snide, sarcastic comment of, yeah, because some snarky bus driver made a comment. It's not even a story. Next question. Typical John Gruden fashion. Uh, you're going to have to answer for that. It wasn't the first time you played. It wasn't the second time you played them. It was the first time you played them. And now they get to go into a Legion Stadium and drop, what, 50? I don't think that was a good move from John Gruden to purposely antagonize and to awaken a giant in the Chiefs who seen to have been sleepwalking. But I guess we'll see the results of that one. And finally, Monday Night Football, Rams and Bucks. I think this is a game where this could either go two ways. This can be a buzzsaw. Like we predicted last week, the Bucks were going to buzzsaw the Panthers. And it turns out they did. They beat them by 23, and the game didn't even feel that close sometimes, especially once Bridgewater suffered that knee sprain. Or it could be a good Rams game. You know how we talk about, hey, good Rams game, bad Rams game. There's no in between. And this could be a good Rams game in regards to they have a pass rush led by none other than the best defensive lineman in the last, what, 10 years, maybe more, Aaron Donald, who, you know the rule, you know how to get to Tom Brady, you send for, you make him uncomfortable, and you make sure that he knows you're there at all times and that he can't just sit back and wait on his talented players to get away. And so that would be a very interesting game to see the young secondary of the Bucks against Sean McVay and those receivers. The Rams arguably have the best secondary in football against the no doubt best receiving core in football in the Bucks. So that would be something to definitely watch and to pay attention there. But up next, we're going to shift to Jack's pack, which is our NFL betting segment.
and we are back and now we're gonna shift to our nfl betting segment called jack's pack good news we didn't go in five last week high five all around bad news we also didn't go 500 we went one three and one which would be our third consecutive losing week I don't know. COVID has everybody befuddled in terms of the betting lines. The lines are all over the place. It just doesn't seem like it's a fun opportunity for anybody. Nobody I listen to or even discuss with or even any of that, even 500 this year. This is not great. But hey, we're going to keep at this thing. It's only, we've only been through 10 weeks. We're 21, 26, and 3 after going 1, 3, and 1 last week. And the numbers, I wasn't a huge fan of them, admittedly, but we're going to go with these five games. Up first, we're going to have Chiefs versus Raiders. Raiders plus seven, take the Chiefs. Look, uh, that victory lap's going to stick in Andy Reid's crawl. He made no quarrels about mentioning it, so he knows it happens, and he's going to want a little revenge. And I know Andy Reid's style. If he can hang 100, he's going to score 100. That's not going to be good for the Las Vegas Raiders. Up next, we have Cowboys versus Vikings. Vikings minus seven. Take the Vikings. Look, Andy Dalton has not practiced in two to three weeks. I mean, he practiced this week coming off the concussion and COVID. We've seen the effects that COVID have had on Cam Newton and how his production has precipitously fallen off ever since he had the COVID diagnosis. And now Andy Dalton, you combine a concussion and COVID, that cannot be good for him. And the Cowboys already struggle to score points. Now you've got a confident Vikings team who just beat the Bears. Dalvin Cook doesn't have two bad games back to back. And we know the Cowboys in defense don't belong in the same dictionary, let alone sentence. And so with that, I'm gonna say take the Vikings, even though they have to give up seven points. Up next, we have the Dolphins versus the Broncos. Broncos plus three and a half. Take the Dolphins. I don't think the Broncos are going to score 14 points. This Dolphins defense is legit. It is the second best scoring defense in the NFL. The only reason why they're not number one is because they played Kyler Murray and he's been scoring 30 on everybody. And so with that being said, with dancing Drew Locke at quarterback of the Broncos, I'm going to go with that Miami Dolphins defense to strangle, for lack of a better term, that Broncos offense, take the Dolphins. We're going to go with Rams versus Bucks. Buccaneers minus four, take the Rams. I'm not sure who's going to win the game, but I know it's going to be really close. And I know that the Rams have the formula to shut down a Brady-led offense. A dominant pass rush led by a dominant pass rusher and a great secondary and an offense that doesn't usually turn the ball over, that's how you beat the uh, Brady-led team. That's what happened when the Saints beat them twice. That's what happened when the Giants beat Brady in the Super Bowl. So the Rams have the formula. I think it's going to be really close. Even if the Bucks win, take the Rams. Lastly, we've got the Jets versus the Chargers. The Chargers minus 9.5. This is one of those games I didn't care what the spread was. I was going Chargers. Look, I know the Jets covered against the Patriots thanks to Joe Flacco, and Flacco's coming out again this week versus the Chargers. But the Chargers have a little bit of more defensive swag back. Chris Harris Jr. has been designated to return. Not sure if he's active on Sunday, but just having him around is going to be huge for the Chargers, having him 
back in the building, being an energizer bunny is going to be huge. And I don't think Joe Flacco can turn back the clock in 2011 again. I think that Justin Herbert is going to have his way with this Jets defense. And the Chargers really need a big, strong, confident win here to instill confidence in the general manager, Tom Telesco, and the owner about Coach Lynn and his ability to lead this franchise. So I think the Chargers are going to run away and hide with the game versus the Jets. So just for a recap, we've got Chiefs over Raiders, Vikings over Cowboys, Dolphins over Broncos, Rams over Bucks, Chargers over Jets. Now up next, we're going to shift to the NBA offseason and what's been going down in the most fun part of the year to some for the NBA, the offseason. Alrighty guys, and we are back. We're now just a quick touch on the last segment about Jack's pack. While I'm confident in the Chiefs over the Raiders, the Raiders basically entire defense went on the COVID list, so they haven't really practiced all season. But anyway, back to the topic of this topic of this segment, and we talk about the NBA off season. First, I just want to start off by saying uh, prayers up to Clay Thompson. He tore his Achilles in his right leg because he tore the ACL in the left leg or vice versa, but he tore his Achilles in the opposite leg of the ACL surgery. Unfortunately, that tends to happen. You have a major injury on one side of your body. You're an athlete. You compensate to your other side of your body. Now that side gets hurt and it's just an odd balance that sometimes never gets fixed. It puts the nail in the windowsill of the Golden State Warriors dynasty. It's over. Fans, especially bandwagon Warriors fans, anti-LeBron people, they just general basketball people. Stephen A. Smith has even mentioned it before uh, today, obviously, that the Warriors were the biggest contender to the Lakers. They were the biggest threat because the NBA started to move away from the Warriors style again, which means they were going to be the only ones rolling out those two great all-world shooters, along with now drafting James Wiseman, along with having Draymond Green back in his natural role. You got Andrew Wiggins not having to do a whole lot. Back to his normal role, just setting up the shooters, setting up the big for easy dunks. I was looking forward to the Warriors being back, you know, to this big mix of the NBA. And then Clay. um, Pops is Achilles going to work out. So I hope he's okay. I hope he makes a full recovery. Like I said, in my opinion, it does death nail the Golden State Warriors dynasty because next season, the Achilles is basically 12 months. That puts him into November in a normal season. That's a month in at least. Okay, so then he's a clear in a month in. He's got to get his win back. That'll take him another month and a half. You're looking at January 1. Best case scenario, Clay being 100%. Well, now Steph Curry would be 34 on a smaller frame. That's another year for Draymond Green. That's maybe Andrew Wiggins still there in a year. Now you've added to Kelly Oubre. You give James Wiseman a year to grow up, but now he's got to get used to somebody else taking 18 shots a night. That's just a situation where it's it, it's over in Golden State. I mean, they got Nico Mannion in the draft. They got James Wiseman, obviously. They're making a trade for Kelly Oubre from Phoenix. But it's a situation where 
it's it's sad, man. And uh, usually dynasties end on injury. Usually it happens in football, though. The dynasty ends on an injury, and unfortunately, this happens in basketball to Clay Thompson. Um, but shifting to the results of the NBA draft, a mild shocker at one. I think I spoke last week how I expected LaMelo Ball to go one. I thought it would just be too hard for the ownership in Minnesota, fairly new ownership group, to pass up on an automatic ticket draw in LaMelo Ball. Period. Not due to the fact that he was the best fit. I mean, he was an on-ball dribbler, an on-ball, not great off-ball shooter. Same thing as D'Angelo Russell. I mean, he may not have been a great fit at all with D'Lo and Carl Anthony Towns, but I figured that a young ownership group would take Leangelo Ball, drop him in Minnesota, and say, we'll figure out the basketball later, but that kid's going to sell 3,000 tickets by himself a night. But also they went with Anthony Edwards, who made a comment about how he doesn't love basketball. He's actually a football guy, and if he got drafted by the NFL, he would drop basketball on second and go play football. Not necessarily something you want to hear out of your number one pick, but it's honest. Um, I remember Tony Gonzalez was on Colin Cowherd's show one time, and he's asking him, Cowherd asked him, you know, how many guys truly love the game? Tony Gonzalez said about 10%, and then he said about how many guys are truly committed because of that love? About 5%. The rest of the guys are in the league to because of what football provides for them. Not for what they can do for football, basically. It's what football provides for them. Whether it's nightlife, whether it's money, whether it's, you know, the opportunity to meet women, whether it's the opportunity to just say you're a celebrity and have millions of dollars. I mean, it's not a bad way to go, but not many guys truly love the game, which do I see a lot of guys plateau when they enter the sport because they're not committed to it and love it. But Anthony Edwards went one to Minnesota. James Wiseman went two to Golden State. I talked about that when I was mentioning Clay. For the first time in Golden State's run, they have a legitimate big. Look, this kid's talented. He can step that shot out three-point range just a little bit. He's got a decent touch on the shot. Maybe he can pull it out three-point range. You know, Golden State's going to encourage him to shoot one or two, maybe even three a game, just to threaten it, you know? He's got a decent post game. He's a rim protector, and he can definitely finish around the rim. He might walk into the NBA, especially with Clay being down, and average 17 points and seven, eight, nine rebounds, similar to what Aiden did as a rookie in Phoenix. Now, the mellow ball did go three to Charlotte, which was a very interesting situation for Charlotte because Michael Jordan, who had the report come out that he had greenlit drafting LaMelo ball. And now there's an automatic ticket draw for Michael Jordan in Charlotte and a legitimate franchise piece. Now they have Terry Rozier and they have Devontae Graham. I would think they would try to move Terry Rozier, save a little money because you can put Devontae Graham beside LaMelo Ball. They can put on the floor together. I don't think you can bench Terry Rozier at this point in his career um, for a rookie, but maybe if you can talk to Terry Rozier and have him, you know, mentor and come off the bench ready to score maybe you keep Terry Rozier but Michael Jordan was all in on the LaMelo Ball experience because Michael has told people he wants to be the richest most powerful owner in the NBA how do you do that you've got to sell tickets what does a ball brother do he sells tickets so in a smaller market like Charlotte if LaMelo goes in there embraces the city embraces the area embraces Buzz City and the team there's no reason why LaMelo won't be the king of Charlotte within a few weeks. I mean, with Cam out of the city, out of the Panthers, there's 
a void there. Christian McCaffrey's good, but he's not a basketball player, and he's not a young basketball player with a lot of promise and potential. The sleeper pick of the night, and I think was the best pick of the night, was OB Toppin to the New York Knicks at eight. That was huge because OB Toppin's from New York. I mean, the last time the Knicks brought in a player from New York, I believe it was Mark Jackson. That turned out well for the franchise. No championships. It is the Knicks. Let's not lose our minds here. But it was a good move for the franchise. I think Obi Toppin's perfect. I was touting him, you know, wherever I can tout him, saying that he's going to be the guy that's going to make an immediate impact. He played power forward. So that was a bit of a, you know, a little interesting spot because the Knicks had Randall and Tyus Gibson and Bobby Portis and a lot of power forwards. You got another. But I was thinking, you know, Randall and Toppin can play together. Toppin can shoot. He can move. He can attack the rim. He can defend two threes or fours. They can play together. They're versatile. Well, the Knicks cleared up a little bit of that log jam by shedding off Taj Gibson and Bobby Portis today. And therefore, that clears a lot of the log jam space for the acquisition of Obi Toppin in the draft. So... Also, a good pick, I think, was Onyeka Okongwu for the Atlanta Hawks. I call him Big O, and I call him Big O because he's been called that since he was at Chino Hills with the Ball Brothers. They were calling him Big O because nobody wanted to try and pronounce Onyeka. And so that being said, he is going to be a great fit for the Atlanta Hawks. Presumably, they end up with Rajon Rondo. Danilo Gallinari, you already have Trey Young. Now you've got Big O. You already got John Collins. You already got Cameron Reddish. That's a playoff team in Atlanta this year. So the Atlanta market should be incredibly happy about that selection. Now moving on to some trades in free agency that went down already. So in draft night, we had a trade. Seth Curry from Dallas will swap for Richardson of the 76ers. Josh Richardson of the 76ers. That was a big move for the 76ers because it gives you a knockdown shooter who's also a ball handler in Seth Curry. And for Dallas, it clears up a little bit of the log jam at the point guard position. And you get Josh Richardson, who's a good two-way player, to put alongside Luka Doncic, who can immediately start because he has some size. You couldn't start him and Seth. You couldn't start Seth and Luka because you wanted one or both of them in a scorer's mindset. So that was just an interesting situation. That was a good trade for both teams. In my opinion, a great trade for the 76ers. Now, the most active team during the week was the Milwaukee Bucks. They trade three first-round picks, the right to swap two others, Eric Bledsoe and George Hill for Drew Holiday of the New Orleans Pelicans to immediately give Giannis Antetokounmpo a third all-star level player on the team so obviously Giannis is a two-time reigning MVP Chris Middleton is an all-star in the east I believe Drew Holiday is an all-star level player in the east it's hard to make an all-star in the west as a guard when you've got stuff and Clay went healthy and Harden and Westbrook and Dame and Luka I believe is classified as a guard as well out west it's really hard to make a move and all-star out west but TJ McCollum as well. But in the East, he's probably making an all-star game as soon as he arrives. So that's three all-star level players already on the Bucks. The Bucks said, hey, we got one deal. Let's make another. So they attempted to make a deal for Bogdan Bandanovich in a sign-in trade with the Sacramento Kings. They were going to give up a couple of young pieces. Uh, DJ Wilson, Dante DiVincenzo, 
and a couple of other pieces to move to the Kings in order to get Bogdan Bondanovich. Well, unfortunately, uh, Bogdan Bondanovich had not agreed to sign with the Kings in order to make the signing trade work. So he's decided to enter restricted free agency. He's going to fill several offer sheets and then tell the Kings they can match, but he'll have rights to negotiate his sign and trade because if he doesn't want to sign or go to the new team, he can just say, no, he won't sign the contract originally to get to the new organization. So that was a situation where the Bucks should have been on top of that. The Kings definitely should have been on top of that. And so Giannis may look at that and shake his head as a sign of organizational failure. Also, a trade that was done was a three-way deal that landed Luke Kennard on the Clippers. Landry Shamit is now a Piston. And so that was an interesting move as well with the Clippers clearly trying to get some more knockdown shooting inside of the organization instead of having what they just built was a defensive wall. And I think probably the most underrated trade of the offseason, and it's probably going to stay that way, is Dennis Schroeder to the Lakers. That was a humongous move, a great preemptive move by Rob Palenka in anticipation for Rajon Rondo exiting stage left, presumably to the Atlantic Hawks on like a two-year, $15 to $20 million deal from Atlanta. So that was a great preemptive move by Rob Palenka, like I said, and the rest of the Lakers organization, trading Danny Green in the 28th pick for... Dennis Schroeder. He's an excellent scorer. He can score. He can run the point. That was a good move. He's got some size to him. So that was a great acquisition. Also, Philadelphia, speaking of Philly, going back to them before moving on, they had a great move dumping out Horford's salary on the Oklahoma City Thunder. They traded out Horford, a first round pick and a second round pick for Danny Green and I believe it was just Danny Green if I'm serving it correctly. But it was designed to get rid of Al Horford's salary. They take a similar salary in Danny Green, but it's only for one season. So therefore, doing that, you get rid of Al Horford's salary. You can take on a contract like Seth Curry, who's got a few years left on it. And you're in, you can get into our Austin Rivers sweepstakes. You can see if Jeremy Grant wants to come to Philly. You have multiple options because now you're no longer under the contract of Al Horford. And it'd be easier to absorb, let's say, a James Harden. If he decides that, you know, he wants to leave the Brooklyn only lane and he's interested in going other places because Philly was on his original watch list. But with all that being said, the drama of the NBA offseason is just starting. Free agency opens on the 20th. And so therefore, it's going to be a lot more fun happening in the NBA. I believe it's 20th, maybe the 22nd, but it's not that far away. And so therefore, we will have a lot more drama from the National Basketball Association in the coming weeks. So next week, we'll be reporting on all kinds of stuff. Follow the Twitter page at Sports for breaking news and updates. I'm getting it from everybody. I'm doing my best to find out my own information. And so I am keep it loaded. I keep that page active. So please give that a follow. Turn on the post notifications so you have the information before your friends do. Now, up next, I'll be shifting to quickly shifting to the NCAA and what's going down with COVID because they're battling it every single week. All righty, guys, and we are back. 
and now we're going to talk about the NCAA basketball and football and what they're doing to combat COVID. To start off with NCAA football, they have extended the dead period in recruiting to April 15th. So that means that for the first time in history, an entire recruiting class will be recruited and scouted and all of that permanently. I mean, it will be done virtually. This will be the first time that would be done. Obviously, due to COVID, they wanted to limit as much interaction ever. And so they are going to have an entire class be recruited virtually. That being said, the level of recruiting is going to be probably very regional. I expect guys that, you know, are on the fence, stay closer to home. You know, coaches that are on the fence about a player pick from closer to home. It's just easier. So having the resources to go watch a guy closer to home would be a little bit easier on the staff than going to watch a guy three, four, five, six states away. So that'll be an interesting change there. NCAA football is powering through. The SEC has basically said we're not stopping under any circumstances. And they're going to play uh, makeup games the same day as the SEC championship game. And one of those possible makeup games tentatively right now is LSU and Alabama. One problem. Alabama is probably going to be in the SEC title game. So we're probably not going to get LSU Alabama this season. But other than that, we've had no real bad outbreaks anywhere. I'm going to give a small reprieve to certain coaches, James Franklin, John Harbaugh, pretty much any coach that has a good record of coaching. And all of a sudden they're struggling, you know, in the year with the virtual meetings and COVID and a pandemic. I'm going to give those guys a break. It happens. I mean, John Harbaugh's coached 16, 17 years. He's got two losing seasons. Both happen to be at Stanford. We've seen what James Franklin can do at Penn State. We've seen what guys like David Shaw can do at Stanford. Let's not go murdering them and wanting them fired in a situation where everybody's struggling pretty much. Unless you're just way more talented than the other team, you're struggling. Because you have to do your entire system, your entire install virtually. They're 18 to 22-year-old kids. 24, 25. Yeah, it's going to be a problem. So let's give some of these coaches a little bit of a reprieve. I mean, they've had staff members get COVID, family members, you know, they're distracted on and off the field, trying to make sure their guys are protecting themselves and stuff like that. It happens. Let's give these guys a break. Now, as for NCAA basketball, they are discussing having the entire NCAA tournament in one city. I'm like not even sure that's possible. That's 68 teams times what? 12 players a team times... I mean, you got some staff members, so trainers. So let's say 18 people a team, 20 people a team times 68 teams. I don't know how that's possible to have a basically a bubble for six weeks with 68 teams. Now, the only benefit is after the first weekend, boom, it's 32. So if you look at it that way, you're thinking it's only 32 teams. In theory, you could fly the players back home sterilize all the hotel rooms they were in and stuff like that and then have them come back test every day test every day test every day okay play another week boom it's 16 then you fly them right back out you do the same thing so i guess in that way you can make it work that'll just be a very tough struggle analytically and 
that'd be a very tough struggle economically and practically for the NCAA, which has a general complaint about money issues. So that would be definitely something to watch there and to keep your eye on in terms of how they're going to handle the situation about COVID trying to play the NCAA tournament if we do not have a vaccine. But up next, we're going to talk about best for last, which is going to be a recap of the Cardinals and the Seahawks game on Thursday Night Football. All right, guys, and we are back with our best for last segment, which is a recap of the Thursday night football game between the Seattle Seahawks and the Arizona Cardinals. Admittedly, I was shocked. I should not have picked in my pregame. Should not have picked the Cardinals to go into Seattle and win that football game. But I had that much faith in Kyler Murray. Not really the rest of the team, just Kyler Murray in general, along with DeAndre Hopkins. However, the Seattle Seahawks defense showed up big time. Carlos Dunlap had two huge sacks, including the game ender, when I thought Kyler Murray might have had one more magical run in him to put a stranglehold on the NFC West. Instead, the Seahawks, led by a great run game, they looked like the Seahawks of last season in terms of running the ball for a dominant amount of yards, keeping it about 50-50. They found a little success in the run game with Carlos Hyde and Bo Scarborough. And they were able to allow Russell Wilson to play what may be Russell Wilson's game, which is the best game manager in football. Now, game manager is a dirty term in terms of quarterbacking. You don't want to be labeled as one. They think you don't do much. But in fact, the game manager probably is what you're looking for. I mean, what was Tom Brady in New England? He was the game manager. He was there to not turn the ball over, to not put the defense in bad spots. And from there to be special two to four times a game. Well, Seattle tonight asked Russell Wilson to be special two to four times a game, a couple of third and longs. He had a couple of second longs to get a third and manageables, but it was not a situation where he dropped back to pass 40 times, even though the Arizona Cardinals defense is susceptible to getting burned, as we saw earlier with DK Metcalf, and a couple of other times DK should have scored. Then the Arizona Cardinals, you saw a few weeks ago, allowed Tua to have a big day. Seattle didn't ask Russell to do that. And so that was, I think, a good job by the Seattle coaching staff. On the Arizona side of things, they just seemed a little disjointed. Kyler had some sort of shoulder injury early. Um, I didn't see any major contact uh, reports are saying that it might have happened when he was sacked earlier in the game and rolled on. Then that might have strained his shoulder because they had a heating pad on it along with a towel pretty much the rest of the game, trying to keep it unstiff, trying to make sure it wasn't stiff, trying to make sure it was warm and that he was able to still function. And he still looked good in terms of accuracy. Uh, Arizona's offensive line struggled. They had four pre-snap penalties, including false starts. They had a couple of holdings, including one in the end zone. And when they weren't holding or getting a false start, it said there was two or three people in Kyler's face where he was throwing and ducking or throwing and trying to avoid a, a person sacking him at the same time, including a key third down throw to Andy Isabella that had he been able to set his feet is an easy completion, either for a touchdown or a first down to continue the threat for a touchdown at the end of the game. 
But all in all, I think that was a coaching exhibition and a coaching win for Pete Carroll over Cliff Kingsbury. I thought Kingsbury managed the clock well in terms of what he did with Kyler. I just wasn't a huge fan of some of the play calls. I wasn't a huge fan of some of Kyler's decision-making. It seemed like he looked for the home run on two QB-designed runs instead of just getting the first down. For instance, it was third quarter. I believe it might have been second quarter where he has a QB designer run to the left or the top of the screen, and he has the inside. He even has his left tackle coming to block the linebacker he's trying to make a move on on the inside. If he just ducks to the inside, dives forward or slides, he gets the first down, and the Cardinals keep driving. Instead, he sees the Seahawks coming on the inside, but instead of trying to make the first down, he tries to make the home run and ends up getting tackled because the linebacker already had outside contain. And then he did that later in the game in the fourth quarter. He, instead of just following the design play of Key and Drake, possibly making a move on a safety on the inside and getting in the end zone, again, he does the same thing. He tries to avoid the people coming through the hole, tries to bounce all the way outside, ends up gaining one or no yards because Jamal Adams already had outside contain. So Kyler Murray didn't have his best game in terms of decision making. Uh, but all in all, I think that it makes the NFC West race more entertaining. Obviously, the Rams play Monday night versus the Bucks. So if they were to lose that game, Seattle has sole possession of first place, but they're only a game up on everybody with five games left after that. And San Francisco is not out of it. They're four and six. So only two games, two and a half games out right now before they play this Sunday. But that will conclude this week's episode. I hope you guys had a great time listening. This was a rather long one. But remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to follow the Twitter page at JTimesports. I repeat, at JTimesports, all caps, for breaking news and updates on the show. Now, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out. Thank you.